This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the REI Co-op, sponsors of the new film How to Run 100 Miles with Brendan Leonard and Jason Sine, two regular guys who set out to see if they have what it takes to run a really, really long way. We weren't exactly born to run in the mountains. We met working at an Applebee's in college in Iowa. It's a story of endurance and hope and resilience, and not just on the trail. I guess if you believe in underdogs, Jason's kind of the alpha underdog. In the best sports movies, the big game or race is really a metaphor or symbol of something bigger. And this one's no different. Also, the film is really funny and emotional. And it'll make you want to be an ultra runner. I don't know how you run 100 miles, but Jason has this knack for making you think you can do things you don't think you can do. I think you'll like his story. And apparently I'm willing to run 100 miles to share it with you. The film is live right now on the REI Co-op Journal at rei.com slash blog. And on February 28th, you'll be able to hear a new episode of the REI podcast featuring Brendan Leonard. That's at rei.com slash blog. Hey, everybody, before we get going, since you're listening to this podcast of Amazing True Stories, I think you'd also like the Risk podcast. Risk is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd share. Stories too uncensored to be played on broadcast radio. Nothing's too strange or intimate. Like the girl who discovered she was living with a cannibal. Or the guy who attempted murder. Or the woman who realized the person she was sharing kinky fantasies with online was her dad. Find all that and so much more at riskshow.com. Or just search on your podcast app for Risk. That's R-I-S-K exclamation point. Also, before we begin, I should say that today's episode is super fascinating, but at times a little bit puerile. It's about human waste, and there are a lot of euphemisms and idioms involving poop in our language. This story contains just about all of them, and some swearing. So if that's going to bother you, maybe skip it. Okay, here we go. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. Hello? Yeah, sorry, you dipped out for a second there. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. For the last two weeks, I've been traveling in Central America. And not the traveling for a story and working hard kind of traveling. More the warm water, hot sun, and taking photos of abundant sea life sort of traveling. Eat lunch, take a nap, and then after that I would go and just like swim in the back bay. But just before I left, I stumbled into this great story. Or stepped in it, you might say. Or maybe someone put this story in a bag, lit the bag on fire, and then rang the doorbell and ran away. In any case, it was right there in front of me. And it was obvious that we had to report on this. But because I was headed out of town, I had to hand it off to my co-producer, Robbie Carver. So while I was snorkeling, Robbie was producing probably the shittiest story we've ever done. So just to clarify, is this was this human shit? This was my shit in this This was bucket. your shit. We're looking at your shit in a bucket. So you, you, you literally shot in a bucket for this. Yeah, right. All right. Uh-huh. When I met up with Jeff Hill, I was prepared for a shit show. And sure enough, we'd barely shook hands before he was literally showing me buckets of his poo. Well, it used to be shit in a bucket, and okay. now... But it wasn't nearly as disturbing as you'd imagine. And it just smells like really beautiful, clean earth. Like like the kind of earth that you would want to dig your finger... I'm not going to. It was like springtime on a farm, or some sort of cologne for hippies. And it was the result of a mission Jeff's been on for nearly 10 years now. 
a mission to make poop more palatable. But that's not where he started. His first attempt at saving the world was making biodiesel. And then he started converting cars to run on french fry oil and using them to get to his favorite climbing sites. And then I could experience the wilderness without feeling like at the same time I was being detrimental to it getting there. So that was the first real motivation of like, okay, my, my life's work is going to be around redefining waste. This notion of working with waste took him to graduate school, and he soon found himself among the Inuits in one of the northernmost parts of Canada, where disposing of waste takes a little more effort than just flushing. So we drag this 55-gallon barrel of frozen piss and shit into the ocean, wearing full waders, you know, and then we take an axe and chop the stuff out of the barrel, chipping shit into my face, recognizing that there was a huge hole in the technology of managing human waste. But he wasn't quite ready to devote his life to this problem. You might say he was too young for this shit. Instead, he finished his master's and turned to the mountains, enrolling in guide school. And was pretty far along and realized I actually wasn't going to be a good mountain guide. I actually kind of sucked at it. <laughs> and so I failed out of the program, but still wanted to work in the mountains. I want to be engaged and helping out and like improving the mountain environment. But what am I going to do? So Jeff went back to school for his PhD, but he didn't know what to focus on. So he reached out to the managers of different park systems and asked, what problems did they need solved? Every one of them said, shit. We have no idea what, what to do with our poo and pee in all of these places, be it backcountry lodges or campgrounds or wilderness sites that parks are managing. So I accepted my fate and I took this PhD as managing human waste in the Alpine. Here's the deal. Over 330 million people visited U.S. national parks in 2016. And basically all of them had to take a dump while they were there. And while you may stop thinking about it the second you wipe and zip, that's where the problem starts for park staff. Uh, for example, right now at Longs Peak, uh, one of our workers up there is uh, using a post hole digger to remove raw sludge on a daily basis, putting that into buckets and packing that out on stock in order to keep the system clear enough just for use. It's filling back up rather quickly. That's Tara Vasella, backcountry coordinator of Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Her park has seen a 40% increase in visitors in the past four years, which means 40% more crap to deal with. And that shit's nasty. Among a host of other pathogens, poo contains E. coli, salmonella, and often hepatitis A, rotavirus, norovirus, and in some cases, hookworm and cholera. So with the pleas of backcountry rangers everywhere still ringing in his ears, Jeff packed his bags and headed up to the Bugaboos mountain range in British Columbia to learn everything he could about shitting in the woods. And, um, and so that's also where I'd done my guide training the year before. And then the next year, there I am, there, the guides who passed were guiding clients, and there I was, like, literally weighing their shit with pet scales. Jeff was humiliating himself for a larger purpose, however. He needed to find an answer to the backcountry's most pressing waste problems. How do you store this huge amount of pee and poo? How do you handle it without contamination risk to staff, park visitors, or the environment? And how the heck do you even get it out of the wilderness? Probably most pressing, how do you do it on a shoestring budget, even as visitation numbers continue to increase? Each park has different answers to these questions, but none of them work. Backcountry managers have traditionally relied on two systems for handling waste, pit or pack. 
Pit toilets are exactly what they sound like. Dig a big hole, use it until it fills up, then cover it and dig again. And while this method is cheap and easy, it comes with a number of problems. First, pit toilets smell. Like hold your breath, squint your eyes, and don't bother to wipe kind of smell. Second, there are only so many holes you can dig. Tara from Rocky Mountain National Park told me many of their holes fill up in just three to five months. And that's a problem. They dig and dig and dig, and every, every spot they look for, it's like, oh, that, there's a big pile of shit in there. God, how old is that? 30, 40 years? Contrary to what you might expect, nothing decomposes in a pit toilet. So that shit stays shit and continues to be a breeding ground for pathogens, which can travel thousands of meters, creating a huge risk of groundwater pollution. So digging holes in the ground and then making deposits? Not working. Which brings us to the pack option, as in pack it out. Meaning you shit in a bag, tie it up, and haul it with you, like a responsible dog owner. This is the strategy on Denali in Alaska, where they actually give you a can to shit in. And they, they look at how many days you're going to be on the mountain, and they're going to weigh that can but by the time it comes back down to make sure that you're giving them all your poo. <laughs> so it's a, and you get a fine if your can is too light. And while your average climber may feel like pinching one out over a can adds to the adventure, it's probably not what the day tripper in the RV a little further down the mountain had in mind. Simply put, the more visitors a park gets, the more impractical a solution the pack-it-out method becomes. So, in some places, parks decided to just make the bags bigger and handle pack-out themselves. Hikers use an outhouse which collects waste in 55-gallon drums. But then you need to get the barrel out from under the hole, you know, and if there's two of these, they both need to come out, so you could have to drag one of these 400-pound behemoth pissy shit barrels, you know, 10 feet until you can get the cap on it. And then you have to get those barrels off the mountain with helicopters. This can take as many as 30 trips, and for parks that already exist on tight budgets, flying shit is expensive. So the cost per use is about $1.25. Okay, so, so when you say per use, so for per, per shit is or a buck, buck and a quarter, per pee, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so to recap, pit toilets pollute the groundwater, pack out is impractical and hard to enforce, and fly out is prohibitively expensive. So as he started his PhD research, Jeff began to see the beauty of a fourth option, composting toilets. So when I started my PhD, this seemed to be like the holy grail, and I was gonna find a bunch of these composting toilets and understand why they were working so well and present these findings to other parks and show them how they could make it work too. Backcountry composting toilets first made a splash in the 1970s. For park staff, they promised an easier way of disposing of waste. Rather than bury, haul, or fly out soupy poop water, they could simply spread out the composted material behind the facilities. Easy. For everyone else, it just sort of makes sense to put nutrients back into the soil. It's satisfying. And while there were some pretty shitty mistakes along the way, the systems have largely kept improving and getting more popular throughout the years. Except when Jeff started looking into it, he found they didn't actually work. What really became evident was that none of them were working. None of them were making compost. The standard definition for compost is an organic material that is stable, pathogen-free, and can be beneficially applied to land. In a composting toilet, human waste is mixed with a bulking agent, like wood chips, to create enough space for oxygen-hungry microbes to breathe as they break down the waste. 
get the process going strongly enough, and the energy from this breakdown actually heats the material to a level that kills pathogens. So a steaming pile of shit is actually a good thing. That means it's working. Give the pile regular mixing and the proper balance of wood chips, moisture, and time, and the result is a beautiful, nutrient-rich material that, if local regulations allow, can be safely reintroduced into the soil. But that's not what was happening. When I started collecting all the information, it became clear that there was a whole host of reasons why they were going to fail. And all of them had one of those reasons, if not multiple reasons, you know, causing a failure. Jeff toured dozens of composting toilets and tested 16 of them from four different brands. In some, ammonia levels from urine were so high that it killed all the poop-eating microbes, so no decomposition happened. In others, decomposition was evident, but at temperatures far below what's needed to kill off pathogens. In high traffic areas, the systems were simply overrun by usage levels far beyond their design, and waste had to be removed before it had a chance to break down. Jeff's findings have been corroborated by other researchers. In 2012, biologist Gabrielle Black was hired by the Carbon Cycle Institute to find out if composting toilets could provide enough usable compost for a carbon sequestering program. So Gabrielle investigated 13 toilets, from farms to campsites. But kind of the general consensus, which I think is reflected in that case study, is that they weren't really working as advertised. Um, and what I found, I think, was very few, if any, people were able to actually use the material at the end. Um, a lot of them were being pumped out or redirected to sewers um, because of these issues. Other folks have found the same thing. In the UK, a recent study by Living Water Ecosystems advised against using composting toilets at all, because at UK temperatures, quote, very little composting occurs. One regional parks manager went so far as to tell me that in his long career in the park service, he had not once found a site that was producing compost. And when you have park operators throwing this stuff back on the land, as instructed, a toilet not producing compost is a big problem. So in the case of um, this one World Heritage Site in British Columbia, the operator was following the manufacturer guidelines, following the steps and taking the waste and dumping it out the back of the toilet. Um, and I went through and sampled the waste that was discharged out the back of the toilet and sent the samples to the lab and they found hookworm crawling around in the solid waste. Jeff wasn't shy about sharing his results and he started getting some attention. Turning feces into fertilizer. That's the sales pitch for installing composting toilets in BC parks. But in his PhD research, Jeff Hill learned this isn't always the case. He inspected- Jeff's research wasn't great news for the composting toilet industry. He even got a cease and desist letter from a toilet manufacturer. His university's lawyers cleared that up pretty quickly, but it's still a sticky situation. I spoke with representatives from a bunch of different compost companies and they fundamentally disagreed with Jeff's research methods and his conclusion that the system itself was flawed. They pointed me to a number of environments where their toilets were functioning as intended. Um, the first one I did, I donated to the Grand Canyon National Park and even paid to have it flown in. This is Glenn Nelson from Advanced Composting Systems. Um, and since that time, they have bought probably 50 more from us in the backcountry sites, and we've replaced all the other composting toilets in the park. Um, Properly maintained at the right usage levels, he said, our sure toilets work. Question, and really, it's hard to imagine that they'd be able to stay in business for decades if every toilet failed. Here's Don Mills, director of Clivus Multrum Toilets. We know how to do this. We've, we haven't been sitting on our hands for 45 years. 
we know how to make it work, and we know where it can work and where it can't. This is a compost toilet. It does everything that we say it does when it's done properly. Some of this discrepancy seems to stem from a fundamental disagreement between Jeff and these companies around the word compost. Is it a product or a process? For Jeff, compost has a specific legally controlled definition. Compost is a beneficial, mature product that has maintained high enough temperatures for a long enough time to ensure that it's free of pathogens. That's not happening. So Jeff says just call them dry toilets instead. That way no one mistakenly tosses hookworm next to a trail. And what's interesting is that even though these companies still call it compost, they do admit that without further treatment, their end product does not meet the legal standard that would allow someone to use it as fertilizer. We never make claims about its, the, the end product's readiness for use on site. We say this, that the final disposition of the end products has to be done under local guidelines. I must say that, that, that there are companies that are giving the, the process a bad name if they are making such claims. What their argument comes down to is that because the waste goes through the process of composting, they say it's a composting toilet. This distinction is important because not every wilderness area has the same regulations. If you're on the Appalachian Trail, for example, you're allowed to spread human-based compost. So it's important that the material is up to a certain standard. Same thing in many regional parks in Canada. If you're at a U.S. national park, however, you're not allowed to spread any untreated compost. So all that matters is the waste has been through the process, that is, broken down and made easier to transport. It's headed out of the park no matter what. And actually, here's where these composting toilet manufacturers are succeeding. Because if all you need is an end product that's easier to get out of the park, there are plenty of toilets that are doing just fine. But it just doesn't take much to disrupt their process. In case after case, backcountry and alpine toilets are not only not making compost, they're not composting at all. When we hear those stories from the park service or others where they're saying, we're, you know, we're getting a helicopter in here to haul out stuff that is not compost, that's heartbreaking. Toilet manufacturers may disagree with Jeff about the root cause of these failures, but the companies I talked with weren't hiding from them either. Here's Glenn Nelson. Uh, we have a real high success rate, but uh, the, the, almost every composting toilet we've had that we would say failed to, to removal has been U.S. Forest Service. What the companies are saying is that it's not their fault. Their products are not being properly maintained. Here's Glenn's business partner, Reed Nelson. They, they can't even afford to have anybody maintain them. The systems start to go into failure. They're getting overused. Of course, nothing's getting tested. I mean, that's more, that's not a failure of composting toilets as much as it is a failure of that institution to main, maintain its infrastructure. In other words, a properly used, properly maintained toilet in the proper climate works. It's just that those are a lot of boxes to tick. It's always a challenge, of course. People don't join the Park Service to take care of toilets. In any case, composting toilets couldn't solve the Park Service's waste problem. The holy grail of poop was a plop. So Jeff needed to find a way to make the backcountry toilet actually work. In the heart of the problem, he felt, was that in all of these systems, urine was being mixed with feces. 
if peeing on poop is bad and peeing in buckets is heavy, why not just get rid of the pee? But there was a problem here, too, because this was not a new idea. It's just that no one had gotten it to work. We're too used to putting our number ones and number twos in the same bowl, and separation would require a major change in behavior, such as asking users to pee outside. That's not really realistic, so Jeff used a special toilet insert to separate the two products. So with a bunch of training, people would use these, and I could start to measure really how much urine you could divert away. But there was a ton of logistical problems, like, um, you know, the kid butthole doesn't go far enough back to get the poo in the poo hole, and the, and the kid poo goes in the pee hole, and that clogs that instantly. And gum and all sorts of other things would clog the urine pee hole. So it became clear that whilst urine diversion is effective, it's actually really difficult to establish a urine diversion program that was robust. It turns out you can't potty train adult park visitors. So any waste separation system Jeff tried failed, often in just a few days. So no, I was pretty um, concerned about what my PhD was going to look like. Just handed in that nothing's working. I don't have any good options for you. <laughs> that didn't feel good. And um, at some point, the Fr- this French company, they were called Ecosphere at the time, reached out to me and found me and said, come over to France. We've got this phenomenal system. You know, and I, I, I roll because that's what everyone said about all their composting toilets. So yeah, come and look at this one. This one's working. We fixed it. So um, I said, let's, you know, let's look at the most extreme toilets you have on the backside of Mont Blanc, up at Ski Hills at 2,200 meters. And um, so they said, fine, yeah, okay, we'll bring you out. And you write a paper making sure, you know, do a, a third-party, you know, verification of our systems and compare them to North American composting toilets. Ecosphere claimed to have a robust, low-maintenance source-separating toilet that required no change in user behavior, reduced waste by 60 to 80%, and would not need emptying for 10 to 20 years. In other words, they were claiming to have the holy grail. And the proof, they told Jeff, was in the poo. It was in the first or second site that I went into where it's like, this is remarkably different. I'm standing inside the waste chamber. There's no terrible smell. There's really no smell at all. This, this space has never been emptied, and it's been used you know, in a city front country park for the last five years. And the operator doesn't even know what to do because he's never had to do anything. By keeping the feces away from the ammonia-rich urine, the poo and paper was basically a buffet for worms. Users didn't need to add wood chips, and the process shrank the waste and killed almost all pathogens. So, uh, you know, when I took the samples, these, these, this waste was rapidly de- decomposing, and I could see separation between a drop pile and, and a decomposed pile. There was thousands of worms, you know, per you know, a bucket full of waste. And so the obvious mechanism was there, it was visible. It's like, okay, the shit is getting eaten by these worms. He'd finally found a toilet that did what it promised. It was really like turning it from a critical problem in the North American high-use remote site to almost a non-issue. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the unit sitting over here. Um, this is this kind of shows you some of, some of the guts of this unit. So, uh, I mean, what you're looking at here is a conveyor belt that's built into a toilet. After his PhD, Jeff went into business 
and licensed the Ecosphere toilet to sell in North America. Instead of a buck twenty-five, his system costs three and a half cents per use. From the outside, it's your normal everyday toilet. But instead of a hole or a bowl of water, there's a slanted conveyor belt. Use it like any regular john, and the pee flows down the belt and underneath a dam, while your sticky poop lands on the belt and patiently waits for you to step on a foot pedal that moves the conveyor along. It's like a poop factory. Someone drops a big turd right in the middle. Might take four foot flushes to make it disappear. The conveyor belt continues behind the wall and drops the poop and toilet paper into a chamber. Then scrapers underneath the belt make sure any sticky bits don't make it back around. The urine and any tiny poo particles drain into a septic trench that neutralizes the poo bits, and nitrogen-hungry microbes take care of the urine. 99% liquids, maybe 1% solids, make it past that small one millimeter gap. And then we have uh, the liquids going through just a conventional urine filter that you see in a men's urinal. Okay. You know, this one smells like mango. There's like cucumber and all sorts of other terrible, funny, sort of semi-nice smelling things. Sure. I wonder, was there like board meeting arguments about which, <laughs> <laughs> which scent to go with? Ross gets to make executive decisions on that, yeah. <laughs> He's our engineer technician. And while the poop pit might not smell like mangoes, it doesn't really smell at all. And it's easy to take care of. The pit has two piles, new shit and eaten shit. About three times a year, the new shit, which basically looks like a small mountain of toilet paper with the occasional tiny brown backpacker on it, gets raked over to what little is left of the old shit, wetted down and covered with a plastic tarp. That's it. The bugs, sourced from the local ecology, turn the mountain into a molehill. In alpine situations too cold or impractical for vermiculture, the system is adapted so that the solid waste is deposited into large bags that, because they have no urine and are 90% toilet paper, are incredibly light and easy to transport off the mountain. You know, so one big bag would be uh, the equivalent of flying probably 20 waste barrels. Oh, wow. Not only that, it's simple. And in the backcountry, simple means reliable. It, it won't survive a bombing. <laughs> So we Wait, you didn't <laughs> test for that? <laughs> um, I, think, I think the conveyor belt would melt if a bomb were put in there. Yeah, what we have right now um, between ten and 11,000 feet is one of these units sitting kind of bolted to a big rock. And we wanted to test, uh, would it continue to function through the winter? Could it be used without any building? Could it be used and functional in, in the most extreme climate we could find? Right. Uh, and the answer so far is after three or four months of testing, yes, it's working cool. fine. Yeah. To Jeff, it looked like he had found his perfect pooper. To park operators, it looked the same. So we've had uh, our pilots in place for a year and a half, and um, we have not had to remove waste. Um, this is Tara Vasella again from Rocky Mountain National Park, who had previously been having to dig new pit toilets every year, monitor a poo-in-your-bag system, and had failing compost toilets that couldn't keep up with usage demands. Some of these pilot units we've put in, and we've intentionally put them in, in high-use areas to really give, put them through the ringer and uh, test the system. And, um, you know, right now, I was up there a couple weeks ago, it just like looks like frozen dirt. Um, there's no smell associated with it. And um, that's mostly because the urine separated. So it's been really successful. And, uh, and this is what I heard over and over again as I made calls to parks piloting Jeff's toilet. Over the last four years, not one site has had to extract waste even though they are getting the same traffic as the overrun systems. 
Where their other toilets require weekly, if not daily, attention, they tell me they barely touch this one. Just clean the scrapers and rake the pile every few months. Operating costs basically amount to the price of toilet paper. But I wanted to know, why pack it out at all? If the end product is a rich, dark soil, why not toss it back into the woods? To me, it just made sense. This wasn't waste, it was compost. Except, it wasn't. Using worms is an entirely different process than using microbes. And even though they kill most things, they don't generate heat. Which means they don't kill hookworm. Which means you can't call this compost either. It looks like the Holy Grail. It smells like the Holy Grail. But it's still shit. Which I found pretty crappy. But Jeff wasn't having it. This is the fascination. This is the weird, inescapable fascination of North Americans with recycling their shit. I don't understand it. It's crazy, but I mean, you, you really want to take that and sprinkle it in the backcountry. I can tell that you have that, like, innate desire of, like, oh, I want my shit to go in the backcountry, you know, I'm here in the back. It's like, I recognize that, and, and that's a reality, and a lot of people feel that. But why? Yeah, I mean, there, there's something... The question caught me off guard. I wanted to just say something about closing the resource loop, but that's not really it. There's this like collective guilt that we have, right? That, that we are ruining the environment. We're ruining this planet that we love. And especially people like um, me, and it sounds like you, that, that really love the wilderness. Composting gives shit some purpose. It turns poop into something productive. And giving a little back to nature just feels right, right? To know that, hey, well, at least my shit can can help grow a plant, right? I, I, that is like a pretty, uh, you know, narcissistic, but uh, deep-rooted feel. Right. Yeah. The point is not to make compost. The point is to bring it down to such a small degree of final waste residue that you can feel comfortable taking it out and disposing of it properly. In other words, as much as we want to be part of the wilderness, right down to the microbial level. We're just not. We can't be. At least not in the kind of numbers that we're asking the wilderness to accommodate. As much as we want to give back to the land, the land just doesn't need what we have to offer. In fact, according to Jeff, it's getting pretty sick of our shit. That's Robbie Carver. He produced and reported this story. It was edited by me, Peter Frickwright. This episode was brought to you by the REI Co-op, presenting Brendan Leonard's film How to Run 100 Miles at rei.com slash blog. If you want to get in touch, our email is podcast at outsidemag.com. You can also tweet at me, at Frickwright. That's my last name without the hyphen. And if you're thinking to yourself, they did this whole story about poop and there weren't any gross sound effects or toilet noises like I wanted, go back and check out Science of Survival episode 22, Dangerously Delicious. It's about poisonous mushrooms, and it has stuff you won't hear in any other podcast, possibly for good reason. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.